Good morning. I'm your host, Claudia Shamba, welcoming you to the July 26, 2016 edition of Ask a Leader. Today, Gloria Mark, professor with UCI's Department of Informatics at the Brent School of Information and Computer Sciences, will be my first guest. When I first read about her findings, it was obvious that I had to pay her a visit the analog way by dialing her on my phone for this interview. Her expertise is in computer-supported co cooperative work, and she'll take that up, the multitasking versus monotasking, in our first half. Ah, feels better already. Then we'll feast on the wordsmith prowess and richly layered perspectives on Islam from Ali Etaraz as we talk about his newly debut novel, Native Believer, published by Akashic Books. Mr. Etaraz is one to watch and keep watching. We'll be right back after a station break. Hey everybody, welcome back to the show. My first guest is Professor Gloria Mark. She is with UCI's Department of Informatics at the Brent School of Information and Computer Sciences. As I was saying earlier, when I first read her book, it was obvious we had to have her come and uh, and I, I dialed her up by phone because I knew the analog was the, the way to go with her findings. Her expertise is in computer-supported cooperative work, human-computer action, or HCI is the shorthand you may be hearing today, digital media and behavior, text mining of social media, social media and political action. She's been with UCI since 2000 and over these years has visited all the right places for her work at the Microsoft Nerve Center in Redmond, Washington, MIT Media Lab and Social Commuting Group, National University of Singapore, IBM in Haifa, that's Israel, and the Boeing Company in Bellevue, Washington, Electric Data Systems Center for Advanced Research in Cambridge, Massachusetts. So uh, tell me, where did you complete your bachelor's art? That is not in your vita. Sometimes you guys just skip over the BA part. Well, I have a very unusual background. My uh, first degree was in fine art. And I never thought I would do anything else. I was very committed as an artist. But then I discovered very quickly that I was a lot better in math than I was in art. So I switched over and eventually did my PhD in experimental psychology, which, which uses a lot of math. Okay. So then... Right. You, you, those are the schools I was going to mention. So she joins me in studio today, fitting, giving her research findings about which we'll talk today. So as I said, analog is the, what we're doing as much as we can here. Um, so welcome to the show, Professor Mark. It's my pleasure. Well, the cost of interrupted work, more speed and stress is the work you've been doing. It's the most recent item you've done. Your colleagues at the Institute of Psychology at Humboldt University in Berlin, Germany. Would you define multitasking, monotasking, and the human-computer interactions? So multitasking uh, has had different definitions. It depends on the field that you're referring to. So when I talk about multitasking, my, my focus is on digital media use. And so I'm very interested in how people shift attention among different computer activities. And I'm also interested in a, a switching attention between different devices, such as between the computer and the phone, or even between offline and online work and activity. So the, the best way to think about it for the way that I use the term is the shifting of attention. And that's expensive. Uh, it's, it's expensive in terms of there's a cost, right, to people's, uh, in, in terms of stress, in terms of people's ability to focus, you're constantly switching attention. Okay, and I will we'll get all the way into what the the um, the effects are with that uh, as we get into this deeper. So, 
I know. Well, well it's so funny because I think we've heard mo- we've heard multitasking, and so now we're hearing about monotasking. But we did monotasking first, right? Well, I think we always did multitasking. We were picking berries and looking for pumas. Uh, we, when people were, you know, the hunter gatherers were picking berries, but they always had to be on alert for those bears you know coming after them so there was always multitasking going going on i think what's happened in our digital age is that we're exposed to more information and more uh interactions with other people than we ever ha- have been before in history and so i think that this um uh this creates these conditions for people to be um you know, compelled to check other information and have interactions with other people and to shift our attention constantly. And we don't know we're doing it either. It's, a, it's subconscious. Well, I think people do have a sense that they're shifting their attention. I'm not sure people have that much discipline that they can control it. I noticed that the host that preceded me was, he had uh, a number of things going on during the interview. I mean, I have to engineer the show too and all that, but I saw him with his cell phone and he had, I'm, I'm not sure what he had on the, the computer screen and the interview going on. He was rolling through a lot of things. And so it's, uh, it's, I, and, and that's all about how they're working with its connectivities dealing with, but it's anyway, we're, we're sometimes aware of it and sometimes we're not aware. When I, I found, yes. So, you know, there are cases if, if one task is automatic, such as, you know, you're driving and you're talking to someone, uh, then people can do two tasks at the same time, right? Until that other car swerves in front of you, and then all of a sudden, all your attention is focused on the road, right? But until that happens, you know, you, we've all had these experiences where you're driving, a, you know, a length of time, and then suddenly you realize, oh, wow, what happened? How did I get here? How did I get here? Right. But when different tasks or activities require attention, right, that's what people cannot do, right? Um, There's there's some research that shows that if different activities involve different sensory modalities, then people can do it. For example, you can listen to music and you can type on a document. That's possible. But you're not really... Depends what kind of music, though, right? Depends on the music and you're not really focusing uh, very carefully on that music. Wow, you can't. I, I know some people say they can't listen to anything at all, and some people, I guess, want white noise. But that maybe that's what you're saying. There, there are different kinds of frequencies, wavelengths, and all that 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 may interfere and draw down the attention away from the focus. Yeah, sometimes what white noise can do is it it can mask out sounds that we can recognize. For example, a few years ago, there was a company that developed a device that created what they called pink noise that masked out human voice frequency. And this was uh, designed for the workplace so that people could work without the interference of having other people speaking. Because sometimes if people speak certain keywords, it can be distracting. Okay. For those of you who've just tuned in on Ask a Leader 88.9 FM in Irvine, my guest is Professor of Informatics, Gloria Mark, talking about her findings in human-computer interactions, confirming some of our suspicions that multitasking is not so benign, and well, maybe we can get into monotasking is your secret weapon toward more uh, productivity. So uh, let's let's talk then about the study recently. That's what where you came to my attention. This that's in the Slate uh, article, where thirteen of you decided to monotask for about one week. This is the email study. Yes. Yeah. So uh, it actually took me a long time to find an organization that was willing to be cut off from email for a period of time. And the intent here was that I wanted to see if we could create an environment where people could focus more carefully. Okay. And so, you know, over the years that I've been doing this research, the number one culprit that people attribute distraction to is email. And so I thought, what what if we take email out of the workplace? Will people be able to focus longer? And so that's exactly what we did. And so we had people um, 
in, in a in a workplace uh, go without email for a period of week. We we measured their baseline attention focus on the computer with the email so that we could then compare what happened when email was taken away. So folks want to know how you measured that. So um, we, we used a combination of different kinds of sensors and logging tools. So we measured people's stress uh, by having them wear heart rate monitors. This provides a measure of heart rate variability, which is a measure of stress. Uh, we also logged people's computer activity so we could see exactly, you know, what screen is in the forefront, when people are doing email, for how long, and we could sync up the timestamps, exactly when people are stressed, as measured by the heart rate monitors, and exactly what activity they're doing on the screen. So based on that, we found that when people were without email for a, a work week, their stress was lowered significantly. We also found in looking at their attention focus okay. that they had significantly longer attention. And of course, the, the flip side of looking at that statistic is they, they switched uh, far less frequently without email. So are, did you find out any other factors that you weren't necessarily looking for that people talked about that, um, you know, more dividends, more, more findings? So people... All of our informants that we, we measured, uh, they all reported being happier. Uh, some of them were quite nervous the first two, three days because they thought they were you know, missing out. Uh, but then they relaxed pretty quickly. So uh, the, one of the main findings was that uh, people interacted more with others face-to-face. -face. So they actually loved to get out of their office and actually go into someone else's office and talk with them. And they, they got a great deal of pleasure from doing that. And there's an analog uh, aspect of that data. They are not dealing with the tone-deaf email. They are dealing with many physical features in their colleagues' faces and general physical bearing. That's right. I mean, people are, are there are so many more social cues in face-to-face -face interaction. I've gotten in a lot of trouble with, uh, with tone-deaf emails. That, that come that came from me, or mostly that are coming from me. I don't know how if I overinterpret other emails, but you you understand you experience that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, the email is a way to um, communicate something very tersely, and some people abuse that privilege. So yeah, there can be a lot of miscommunication with the use of email. So we're talking about the the toll. You were talking about that we're. The, the workplace is rigged. It's rigged for this overstimulation, this multitasking. And I, I found out about you when I got the Zot mail that said, here's Gloria Marx's research about, you know, chilling with the, without email. So it's a fact of work life as well as domestic life. I, ha I have a more recent uh, finding. Please do. I think uh, <laughs> the audience might be interested Please. in with respect to email. So, and this is a study that just came out this year, and we found uh, using the same kind of techniques for measuring stress with heart rate variability uh, and also measuring people's productivity, we found yes. that the more time that people spend on email, the more stressed they are. And we also found that they assess their productivity as being lower. And we had controlled for job role because, of course, you know, some people are in some work roles where email is used more than, than other work roles. But even after controlling for that, and even after controlling for the amount of time that people spend on what is called productivity software. Okay. That productivity software is doing using software that's related to work, like using a Word document, Excel, uh, Visual Studio, even after controlling for the amount of time on that, length of time on email still negatively affected their uh, productivity assessment. This is not about my own situation, but I hastened to interject this con this thought. When I was raising my children, it was as the, the advent was opening up for internet, and I had made, I actually then, I made a conscious decision. I am not going to even get 
my addiction started. I knew there was an addiction associated with, with internet access. And so I decided that I would wait until they were more, lo- they were more into the school routine and that kind of a thing before I would make myself accessible to the internet. Cause I thought, man, I'm going to, I'm going to blow off my own kids because I'm, I, I've got mainline that internet connection. Well, you know, it's important to consider that there's a tremendous amount of benefits from the internet. And, you know, the internet has helped in so many domains. It's, you know, in in government, in education, in science. Um, But it's also important to look at the flip side that, you know, we don't want to abuse the usage of the internet. We want to be able to use it effectively we want to be able to integrate it into our lives so that it can help us, right? So um, unfortunately, I think what happens is that people are just um, compelled to uh, spend time on the internet in ways that may not be effective or productive and may even be detrimental for them. So the toll you were talking about stress i'm did is there a way you were able to use a metric for creativity deeper thinking i mean productivity is partly deeper thinking and focusing but could you measure creativity too well in a in a very recent study that's that's actually coming out in publication in a few months we did measure creativity was that hard to do uh no there are standard scales that you can use for for measuring creativity we were actually interested in the effect of work breaks. So, you know, what happens if you actually, you know, enforce that people should take a work break each day? And we looked at two kinds of work breaks. Good. I was going to ask you about that. Right. Yeah. So the one kind of work break was we had people go outside and take a walk. So there's a motor piece. Okay. Yeah. They actually walked in nature for 20 minutes, came back, and then... um, we found that they were significantly better in what's called divergent thinking. That's that's the kind of thinking you do when you brainstorm. Okay. If you brainstorm in, in meetings, for example. Uh, this is consistent with uh, with other studies that have found similar things. You know, we, we looked at this in the workplace where we pulled people out of the workplace, and other studies have found this uh, as well. Like, for example, with college students. Uh, The second kind of work break we looked at was exposure to blue light. So some studies Mm. suggest that if you sit under blue light, it actually helps people focus better. And so we found that 20 minutes exposure to blue light significantly increased people's ability to do what's called convergent thinking, which is essentially, you know, coming up with a, um, a good answer to a problem. That's, that's the way to think about it. And so, you know, it suggests that this might be something that, you know, could be useful in the workplace. But I would caution that we need to do a lot more research. You know, we don't know how long of exposure is, is good. We don't know the schedule of exposure. And we don't know if these kinds, if, if exposure to blue light translates into real world creativity that you would be doing in the workplace, such as brainstorming in a group or problem solving uh, in a group. Well, we know that that blue light lights up the panels so that if it's too late in your day prior to sleep, it screws up all the sleep hygiene you were hoping for. Yes. So I can see how that working with convergent thinking is undermining a restful state. You can't do that. Okay. And it doesn't matter how big the blue screen is, right? Your little cell phone is the same. It's still blue screen coming at you. Yeah. So so what we looked at was a, a separate device okay. that was exposing people to blue light. So uh, stepping out of your research that you've done, if you could speculate a little bit about the evolutionary aspect. I mean, you, you said a little bit about how uh, in early days there there was multitasking, but I don't know if that... I guess if you could speculate in the evolutionary from here forward, what could be, what might be happening? I mean, because there, there's a, a um, you know some theories about how the some of our rapid distractions is changing, changing how we're thinking, and uh, so I don't know if that's if there's an evolutionary process underway now that you might speculate a little bit. 
Yeah, there there are some claims that people that the internet is uh, is changing, uh, changing how our brains are working. Um, I I'm not sure about that. I th I think we need to see a lot more research before we can make any conclusions about that. Um, I think ironically, what's going to happen in the future, and I say this ironically, is that people are going to develop new devices that can um, that can help people focus better. Okay. I, I think that's what's going to happen. What kind of a device? Uh, it could be anything from implants to, oh um, you know, it could, could be external devices that can help guide people on what kind of activities they should be doing. Could be software agents, you know, these kinds of virtual personal assistants that can can help people manage their uh, their digital media use. Fitbit for the head. Could be. Something like that. <laughs> something Trip like that. Trip bit. For, I'm trying to think of mind bit or something. Oh, so here, that's a product. You're, you're launching it here on okay. this program. Wow. Well, while I think about all this, I... I really do. I do think it, you need to write a doctor's note for all of us to take back to work. It says, please let her off the hook with uh, the, her or him off the hook with the multitasking this week. <laughs> well, I, I would imagine that the managers multitask just as much as them. But when it shows. Well, I, and I want to say that it was a very recent sort of anecdotal commentary, and it reinforces it, it, this was like. I, CEO, like a, the president of the company in this country for an international, was my universal robot. People remember that interview a couple weeks ago. But the, the U.S. operations president was saying how much work he gets done when his boss in Denmark is on his three to four week vacation. And so he th that kind of interruption as well. It's a, well, the human interaction, it's the, it's human computer interactions, how that boss is coming through and asking, dinging us from, the, the tasks that we ought to do instead of us focusing on that. But that's, it, it does come up all the time. Yeah, there's actually an interesting anecdote. When it, when we did the email cutoff study, Yes. Uh, one of our participants, uh, he was a, um, he worked in a lab, and it took him a, maybe two to three hours to set up lab experiments. However, he was constantly interrupted by his manager to do tasks. And uh, when he was cut off from email. It would have been very easy for the manager to just simply walk two doors down and to delegate these tasks in person. Right. But guess what happened? The delegation stopped. Right. When the email was cut off, so so was cut off the the delegation of tasks, which suggests that it's very easy to delegate work to other people through email. A lot of it, it's a lot harder to delegate work face-to-face, -to, -face, to ask people to do things. It's much easier to send off an email, ask for information, ask for tasks to be done. Well, the, there's an electronic thread that are, is uh, an important document that uh, I'm sure everybody has a documentation story about. Thank goodness there was that email thread to, to prove some procedural, institutional, bureaucratic point there. Oh, wow. For those of you who've been tuning in to KUCI, my guest is Professor Gloria Mark, and she's talking about her findings with human-computer interactions, and she's talking about what's coming up next, too, uh, confirming, as I said, our suspicions about multitasking and monotasking. Well, when you talk about monotasking in your in setting up an, uh, a research project or when you're talking to, to lay audiences and all that, does everybody know what you mean by monotasking? I, I you have to sort of educate them, say, no, really, this is really what it means. I, I think people, they don't know the term, but when you explain it, they, they get it very quickly. Okay. You know, people are by nature monotaskers in the sense that they prefer to do what's called monochronic work, which is completing one task before starting on something else. But it's the, the world we live in, and especially when we use computers, phones, we're, we're, we're living in a what's called a polychronic world, where people are just, you know, exposed to so much information and, and so many people online, or the potential to connect with people online, that it, you know, it creates this kind of uh, conflict with what's really natural for us. 
Well, and there's an engineering aspect here uh, where uh, we're sitting ducks for even more intensified bombardment and distractions. Yes, of course, because there's always... Uh, there's, there's a market. There's a commercial space that has... To, there can be no void, commercially speaking, on the Internet. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the you know, it's it's ironic because the Internet did not start out as a business venture. But, you know, of course, there's, there's so many new social media tools coming out, and um, there's, you know, so much information that's available that, uh, yes, it's... It, it's very hard for people to stay focused. Now, the Samueli uh, Integrative uh, Medicine Center offers mindfulness training, and which I've actually had the, the real pure joy of getting to participate in just recently. And so I see that as sort of returning people back to a monotasking state. So I don't know if you're, if that's one antidote that's out there. Not that everybody can take a whole course, but they can take a YouTube, you know, breather, a uh, refresher or something like that. But mindfulness is an antidote, no? Yeah. So, so mindfulness has been showing very promising results in encouraging people to focus longer. Uh, there was a study done by David Levi at University of Washington, where he had uh, a, a group of his students take an eight-week mindfulness course and he measured them before and after, and he found out that they were significantly more focused. So in other words, they multitask, switching their attention far, far less after taking this course. Now, the, um, the challenge for yes. mindfulness is that it, it requires a, a commitment of time. It Take, takes about eight weeks for people to really master uh, this te technique. Um, and it's time that you take, there's homework. You've got to you've got to do those exercises between classes too. So it's a big time one. I'm not I'm not even up to making it yet. But and so, it, yeah. and it would be very challenging to convince managers in workplaces that mindfulness is going to provide benefits. If if a manager was willing to try it out, I would suggest that they have people at the work group level do a mindfulness course so that they can encourage each other. Right, because yes. if you do it individually, it requires a lot of discipline. It does. I'm glad we were able to get to that before we had to close today. Well, Professor Gloria Mark, it's been a real pleasure hearing about not only work you've done, but what you're considering doing and uh, sort of open up your, your flair for going into other areas that aren't exactly your immediate sort of purview. It, it's really impressive to, to be able to do that with you today. Thanks for coming down to studio. Thank you. We'll be coming right back with Ali Etteraz to talk about his book, Native Believer. So stay tuned. Welcome back to Ask a Leader. That was the In Motion soundtrack from uh, Social Network. My next guest is writer Ali Etaraz. He completed his Bachelor of Arts from Emory University in Atlanta and his law degree from Temple University in Philly. His genre-swerving publications include short story collection Falsipedes and Fibziens, his memoir, Children of Dust, and numerous essays. You may have heard him on NPR with Terry Gross, Tavis Smiley on C-SPAN 2, read him in Descent Foreign Policy, the Chicago Quarterly Review, Story South, Cross Border, and The Guardian. He is a member of the San Francisco Writers Grotto. Notably, he has lived in the Dominican Republic, Pakistan, the Persian Gulf, and Alabama, or as he calls it in his book, Alabama. And we'll discuss Ali Etrez's debut novel, Native Believer, doing everything I can not to disclose anything that would undermine your freshest experience of the magic of the book's twists and turns. Ali Etraz comes to us today from the East San Francisco Bay Area. Welcome to Ask a Leader, Ali Etraz. Hi, Claudia. Thank you. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Well, thank you. And first of all, congratulations on this remarkable read. Your title 
a native believer captures the conflicts, the irony so elegantly in this tome for our times. And moreover, it, it challenges the notion of one climax and one denouement in a novel. I think you take us to the brink more than once. Is that fair to say? Oh, thank you. I, I guess that when you put it like that, it sounds like you're sort of taking that interpretation of when people think that a story is kind of like a dam. It builds up for a period, and then the water breaks, and then you're flooded over, and then you go home. Well, other than the fact that that's the plot of every single porn that was ever made, that kind of storytelling technique may be formulaic, so maybe this novel abides by kind of like a blender theory of storytelling, or perhaps there's a foreplay theory of storytelling it stumbled upon. Uh, but I didn't necessarily do it consciously. Uh, I, I try not to have a literary axe to grind in my work. Oh, but I appreciate that you notice its differences. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. And it's, we have a lovely show on at KUCI. It's tomorrow morning, and folks, some of them know it, and follow, it's Writers on Writing. And there's, there's sort of writerly publishing business questions that people ask. But we're, I'm going to make it more of a, a topical exploration of what your experience as an in Islam is and you know and what's going on in society uh, as we're looking at this well so does fiction because this is your debut fiction does it avail you more possibilities and opportunities what could you say in fiction that you could not say in your nonfiction? <laughs> well you can uh, swear a lot more in fiction oh, um, is that right and uh, you can go from PT 13 to rated R pretty easily in fiction but having said that I Actually, I've always been uh, a fiction writer. M my memoir, my f which happened to be my first book, really grew out of a series of accidents and um, where I willfully went along with them. It's kind of like uh, when you ha have one career and then you suddenly find yourself, you know, getting pulled along to do something interesting and you're maybe too young or too dumb to stop it. So that's kind of how that the nonfiction arose, uh, but fiction is it's subversive at times, and it's very. That's a word um, I was going to use, and I was yeah. Well, I, it, other than the fact it's a very loaded word, and I would like to you know reiterate that there's nothing subversive about me, <laughs> but uh, it's uh, it's got mystery and it's got possibilities, and it it's able to withhold. Uh, just as much as it reveals, whereas nonfiction often is entirely about, you know, uh, the confessional and, and the revelationary. So uh, I, I like the, the dif distinctions between them. But I, I, I've been writing fiction, you know, for as long as I can remember. And uh, prior to this, I had that experimental short story collection, which I should have titled a lot easier, but um, <laughs> it was a series of experiments which I think were perhaps building up to um, what I did in this book. Well, what's really subversive, I think, is that you rendered the very personal inward struggle of the main character into a very universally understood struggle. Well done. Thank you. It is meant to be, it's in the first person, about the character called M, uh, the letter, and he... I guess, like anybody else in the world, he's just trying to be understood, and um, and and doing so by you know sharing sharing himself. And um, I remain hopeful that uh, people will hear him, you know, despite his flaws and inconsistencies and so forth. But uh, when I was writing, there were many times when I said, "Man, no one's going to get this guy," you know. Um, but that's that's sort of like the relationship you have, you know. If 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 an author is the shrink of the character, then I have that relationship whether you know anyone and anyone else believes in my character or not. I, I believe in I believe in him or her. Well, let's open up like the like the biggest aspect of this, um, the deepest. The it's amazing that Islamic supremacism is introduced early on. And I want to know, because I, I see in the, the blogosphere that you had your ongoing discussions with other uh, 
who call themselves proclaimed experts on Islam. I want to know if those critics of Islam, with their fetishizing uh, what Islamic supremacism is, if that's what motivates your character, George Gabriel. Oh, yeah, George Gabriel. Interesting. That's a good question. Um, I guess it's it's pretty easy to look at the melange of people that are out there who you know are either beating war drums or singing hate songs about Muslims, um, and kind of look at them and treat them like a monolith, or treat them like an industry, or treat them like you know even a profit-making enterprise. And while they may be all of those things, um, for me, the more interesting component of it is that so much of what is being peddled, it, it is almost a re, uh, rehashing uh, of things that, of demons. And, and they, those can be private demons, but they can also be demons that they often brought with them as immigrants from somewhere else. And to take a detour, uh, the character yes. Mahmoud in my novel, who is utilizing, you know, the State Department to sort of execute his vision of what the Muslim world should look like. Sometimes I think that so many people who are breeding a culture of distrust and fear and paranoia in the United States are often actualizing something very private right. uh, upon upon a community or upon a group of faceless, nameless people that you know they only ever name when they want to mock them. So. Uh, I, I tend to look at, you know, quote-unquote, whatever the conversations in the blogosphere or even in daily life as, as very individual, personal moments of when someone has revealed themselves. It's just like an indirect way of them revealing some part of, some painful part of themselves. Um, that's really how I approach this notion of well, people constantly going around about Islamic supremacy because, I mean... It's like two million, five million Muslims in this massive country and around the world. It's not, you know, any threat of, you know, Muslim governments taking over. It's frankly, it's us. We are, we are the big dog. We are the ones who, you know, run the show in most of the world. Uh, so, this hyperbolic uh, feeling and agitation is, in many ways, often a personal confrontation that that individual is having. And I, I don't think I'm giving anything away. It's, it happens very early on in the book, very, very early. It's, it's, setting, it's setting a tone, and we don't know just how profound the tone is till we, we, we get it down later. That, but it all, this, this idea is brought up because your, char- your main character, the narrator, uh, is showing this George Gabriel guy around in the narrator's uh, home, his apartment, socializing with the, the working crew, and George Gabriel takes issue with a, a Quran that it's not even, you've never even looked, the narrator's never even looked at it before. The Quran just happens to be tossed on top of a volume written by Nietzsche. And George Gabriel is reading everything into what that placement means and what your whole, oh, the narrators, I keep saying you because I sometimes try to I fuse you, using that, running with this theme that you must consider Islam as the supreme all all knowing uh, religion that will eventually should dominate the world yes yeah, it's, it's interesting how uh, George does that in, in when he discovers this sort of it's not even a concealed copy of the Quran it actually the narrator doesn't even know that it's there his his mother uh, when she passed away prior to, to passing away just left it there and embossed his name on the inside cover it has a cloth wrapping, and she embossed his name in, in cloth. And for her, it was simply, you know, an act of silently uh, passing tradition on, you know. And and George Gabriel confuses, perhaps, uh, or interprets that tradition to be some sort of aggressive or, you know, p- uh, potentially maniacal act. And... Um, of course, M doesn't understand it. He does. He's not wired to think along those lines. No. And what's what's interesting is that he 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 had never he had never opened the book. Like the, when George opened it, was the first time that uh, he had and you know, opened it. So and his, um, yeah, his smudgy uh, party hands are all over that. It's just like it's really insult to injury. 
Well, right, but you know, M doesn't think that's an insult, right? M. It, what's it interesting about me. M is he's sort of the most ill-equipped person to handle a moment like that. Um, yeah. So, for those of you who just joined in, my guest right now is Ali Etraz, who's recently released his debut novel entitled Native Believer, published by Akashic Books. This is Ask a Leader, 88.9 FM in Irvine, streaming on the web on KUCI.org. And so we're talking about the Native Believer. It's his debut novel. And I'd like to, I think now might be a good time. There's one of, uh, of there's a couple readings we talked about. If you could read the, the one, the early on there in the, the page 3233, I'm not be so mechanical here, but if you could read that, well, we have another piece. I want people to get a sample of what's going on in this book. So if you could start with that before I have, have some other questions for you too, Ali. Sure. This is from the early part of the book. I used to cover women's sports for the Emory Wheel. My beat was the tennis and swim team. But one day at the student center, as I manned a table for a toy drive for talks, I saw Marie Ann, uh, his future wife, headed towards the gym with her friends in those spandex shorts, the knee pads around her ankles loose like unwilling manacles, shoelaces undone. She was nearly a head taller than anyone around her. There was a drawstring bag over her shoulder clapping against her sculpted thigh, she passed by me without looking my way, and in her lengthy form, there was so much presence that I followed. I told myself that I was just going to the gym to write about the volleyball match against NYU. What I ended up writing, however, was a four-page single-space biography of Marie-Anne, her monstrous attacking prowess, how her coaches devised offensive schemes around her ability to hit kills cross courts, even if she was fading down the line her extraordinary leaping, her jump serve, the only topspin serve on the team that had an ace-to-fault ratio higher than former All-American Bernice Darren. I took particular delight in that serve. What a thing of beauty the toss was, like she was a waitress passing through a crowd with a tray. She would perch the ball on her palm way up in the air, taking a moment to look around at her team, at the opposition, at her coaches, the crowd. With a flick, she tossed the ball both forward and high, releasing it as if it was a dragonfly, and then proceeded to run after it like an obsessed entomologist. She leapt over the line. The drawn hand smashed the ball, and the spanked sphere screamed through the air and made a dipping arc over the net. Sometimes the ball dipped so hard and so fast that the opposition didn't even have a chance to move. They would just look at one another after the play was over as if the ball had traveled faster than communication. But the high point of the profile was a long pay into her presence. Inspired by my coursework at the time, how she mm-hmm. redefined feminism because instead of slouching and compressing herself to fit some ideal version of what constituted femininity, she occupied as much room as she desired. There. There is a sample, folks. We've talked about several characters now, and I would like to know from where does your character Ali Ansari come from? And I don't know if I pronounced his name right because I've read the book, of course. I didn't hear. Oh, of course, <laughs> yeah, Ali Ansari. Ansari. Uh, he he he's many things, isn't he? He's an artist who wants to make sort of art house documentaries, but finds himself directing pornography in order to make ends meet. He's kind of this bridge between this very uh, sort of suburban um, youth movement of, you know, fake musicians and, and, you know, false prophets and this other group of sort of um, struggling students, Muslim students around Philadelphia. And um, he originally, he grew in many ways as M grew. And and so in in many drafts of the novel, he sort of appears as this kind of passing trickster, and then in other drafts, he appears, you know, as this alter alter wife uh, in many ways. Uh, he's he's his public wife and many uh, M's public wife in some ways. Right. And of course, of course, they have the two of them end up having conflict, just as M does with everybody in his life. Yes. Yes. Well, I'm I'm going to pivot a uh, really a huge pivot here. When we're we're talking about all these characters with different involvement in uh, worship of Islam, I I guess I want to step back to last month uh, when our focus was on remembering Muhammad Ali and 
his embrace of Islam was so vilified. America on the whole was not ready for him. We caught up with his devotion when he was slowed by Parkinson's disease and certainly when he was eulogized last month. His conversion and worship seemed kind of unidimensional, resolute compared to your characters. Do you want to comment on that? Well, there's so much uh, in that fascinating question. I think the first thing that I have grown to realize as I've been talking about this novel is that um, there is this notion out there that Islam is a belief system. And so if you partake in it or participate in it, if you're a Muslim, then you're uh, participating in those set of beliefs. And while that remains to be true, uh, while that remains true on many levels, I think that we are at a point in our culture where we actually have a different uh, definition of what Muslim means. And, and M is we're trying to grapple with that question on many levels, but now that he's out in the world, I've also been paying attention to sort of other versions of this. And I think we might be at a point where Muslim is, is now racialized. It's a thing that you have, regardless of whether your internal sort of, you know, conscious adheres to Islam or not. And, and so it's, it's, it's a thing that's imputed to you on many levels because of your name, where you might be from, um, you know, what you look like. Muhammad Ali grew up in our before our eyes at a time when the racialization of Muslim hadn't really happened. And perhaps it was on its way, and perhaps he was one of the people who, you know, assist, assisted in it. But for him, when he was talking about Islam, he was talking about the belief system. And now, when we're talking about Muslims, we're, first of all, not talking about Islam so much, we're talking about Muslims. And now we're talking about these people and how they are different from us. Well, we all have belief systems, right? So um, it's not the belief systems that we're talking about anymore. We're talking about something else. And I, I, I don't want to postulate like what that something else is, but it's definitely... Uh, a different conversation that we're having than the one that Muhammad Ali had when he first came around. And he he knew. I mean, he was so resolute. He was, what, 24 years old, and he he didn't have an immediate culture that had his back. I mean, it was, it was an extraordinary devotion that he adopted so readily, so thoroughly. I mean, it, it is a remarkable Well, I think saga. In, in his case, um, just to... Perhaps there was a, there was definitely an element of you know black power and right black nationalism uh, that that undergird that, and he came to um, Orthodox Islam through the Nation of Islam, and uh, which was you know originally it wasn't considered to be one of the Orthodox Islams, and and frankly, people Muslims to this day will you know quibble on whether the nation is part of Islam or not, and. To me, that question is sort of moot right. because of the cultural impact that it has had. Right. Uh, yeah. So, does last week's Red Meetathon in Cleveland, uh, what mm-hmm. I, I call the Republican Convention, uh, where nuance was in short supply, does it bring on a new publication, or you might be waiting for the bottleneck of commentary to free up about just what happened? Um, I'm not a very political writer, and. Um, and that's sort of now true even in my nonfiction, where my last big piece was about, like, fonts on your phone, which now I, am, I understand that everything has political dimensions, and sometimes I'm aware of them and sometimes I'm just as ignorant as anybody else. But, you know, if I, if I looked at, you know, that, meet, that zoo or whatever as an opportunity to write, I would have to do it in a much more organic way, like spontaneously, you know, like if, uh-huh. if I stumbled upon this notion that I want to write about a character who, you know, attends the, one of the national conventions, then, you know, I'll, I'll access it that way. Like well, I won't say to myself, hey, you know what, I got something to say about the convention, let's, you know, make fun of it and let's call it, a, you know, assembly well, of you know, crazy ostriches. I don't know. Well, I um, see, though, it's, it's, it's sort of like a, it was a culmination of a lot of non-nuanced uh, address of what Islam is and what, what it, you know, 
who's who's allowed in, who's not allowed into the society, and that kind of a thing. So I, that's why I'm sort of like here, here, it here was oh, yeah. in you know full full force, uh, heavy duty, bold font kind of a thing. Well, I want to make sure everybody knows where we're going to ever have a chance to meet you in the Southland or elsewhere. Tell us where we can meet you uh coming up you're talking about usc the later on when when and where will uh, yes. that be thank you um I, I believe in the fall we're scheduling something at usc still in the works and um but there's a on my website aliatraz.com there's a whole list of places and they've changed obviously based on uh, and of course maybe you will come down to irvine and say hello to you Okay, well, we we would be delighting in that. Now, I don't know if we have the time. If you want to t- just give us one more writing sample that it was just, I think it put it all down in this large paragraph near the end we're talking about. Could you read that? Sure, thanks, Claudia. Were I another kind of man, a man who had cultivated freedom in his soul instead of all the dandyism of the early 21st century, I might have recognized the things I was feeling and swept my hand all around me and found there lurking in ghostly proximity the souls of all those who wanted revenge, who wanted apology, who wanted acknowledgement, and extended them my assistance, possibly smuggled them into the empire, and let them loose their own songs of war. Perhaps their meditations could help me utter a single phrase of rebuke. I am aware of what is happening, and I do not accept it. But that man, the one against the empire, I was not was a man of the empire. Wasn't that how Ali Ansari had defined me? This man, when enervated, when given a spoonful of consciousness, didn't rise up from the bed with a fist in the air trying to be Spartacus for the victims. He was a master instead of self-deception. Every heightening of his conscience, every little burst of revolt, he only knew how to interpret as a sort of misanthropy, as a sort of mistake. When all the prayers of the violated gathered in him, Rather than say anything in their favor, he kept silent. It was a civilized thing to do. Well, thank you so much for that sample as well. I want to thank you, Ali Etaraz. As he said, alietaraz.com is where we can find out more. And I, that's where you could also find your copy of Children of Dust, which gives more context to Native believers. So thank you so much, Ali Etaraz, for being on the show today. My pleasure. Thank you for having me, Claudia. Oh. So, uh, before I hand off the show, uh, that was my wrap. Next week, we'll have on the whole hour UCI law school professor and commentator extraordinaire, Michelle Goodwin, and I'm hoping a guest. With her fluency in so many legal, political, and social domains, we'll take up whatever topic is the hottest, and I've got a few ideas already, the hottest of that moment. I can't wait to talk with you next week. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Les épreuves semblent longues, plus que tes soupirs, ces secondes qui s'étirent. Avant que les couleurs ne ternissent, laisse-moi t'avertir. Pour mon meilleur et pour mon pire, tellement. Je suis des bienheureux, pas trop malchanceux, qui ont encore un peu d'ivresse enfouie au fond d'eux. T'en prends si tu veux, mais j'en garde un peu. Est-ce que tu vois que ça tourne au drame?